Welcome to the STFM Podcast, brought to you by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. In this podcast, we speak to leaders in academic family medicine about a variety of leadership topics. And now your host, Dr. Saria Carter-Sicosia. Well, today we are really excited about our guest on the STFM Podcast. We have Dr. Bob Phillips with us today. He is a family physician a researcher extraordinaire, and most importantly, he's a gator. Go Gators. Go Gators. So Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I have been watching your career, frankly, over the last couple of decades and have enjoyed your venture and have been inspired by you. Can you tell us who you are, what you do and what you've done, Bob, and what motivates you about family medicine? Wow, that's a big question. So I am Bob Phillips. I'm a family physician first and foremost. Uh, I still practice a day a week with uh, Inova Health Systems and BCU's residency, our community-based residency training program in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, and I've been there for almost 20 years. When I'm not doing that, I'm running the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare in Washington, D.C. on behalf of the American Board of Family Medicine and the ABFM Foundation. Uh, that was set up about four years ago now uh, to try and help physicians be valued for what we provide in the way of value. So aligning how we're measured and how we're paid with the kind of work that we enjoy doing and that is essential for good care. So it, it's working on payment, it's working on measurement, it's working on professionalism and avoiding burnout. So it's, it's got a pretty wide agenda, but is settling into some very specific work. So I'm grateful to family medicine, the academic family medicine organizations and uh, AAFP and ABFM for really being the home for my career for the last 20 years. And quite a career it has been, Bob. And again, thank you for all the work that you've done of four family physicians across the country and demonstrating that value over time. And I want to dig in a little bit more because I'm curious about uh, not only your current experience at the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare, I hope you tell us more about that and what it actually looks like. What does that mean when you talk about the burnout side of this work, the value that we bring and professionalism? I'd like to just better understand what are some of the details? What does it look like? Because I think many of us aren't that familiar with the center, frankly. And it certainly deserves our attention. And you were doing some really exciting things before that as well. And I think our listeners would be very interested to hear that journey. Um, thanks, Saria. I was at the Robert Graham Center from 2000 until 2012. Um, Larry Green brought me in right out of fellowship uh, from University of Missouri. And uh, unbeknownst to me, he was leaving. He planned to leave within four years and, and, uh, and very graciously uh, set me up to be the director for the last eight years of my tenure there. But, um, you know, the Robert Graham Center, uh, which is focused on health policy research and translation of research into policy, um, and, and an arm of the American Academy of Family Physicians, was essential for a number of things. Um, the primary care incentive payment in the Affordable Care Act, uh, for the 
primary care extension program being authorized by that same act, the build out of the UDS mapper to help understand where gaps in the safety net are across the country and the footprint of 30 million patients cared for by FQHCs. So we built a lot of tools and did a lot of research to influence policy. And in 2012, saw an opportunity uh, to come over to the American Board of Family Medicine and build out a second family medicine presence in Washington, DC, uh, not to usurp the Graham Center at all, but to be a partner to it in, in expanding primary care's influence and in the translation of research for policy. So came over to the ABFM um, after helping recruit Lars Peterson to be our first research director, now our vice president for research, and really built out initially the, the the data survey array that ABFM has that each of us has to do as we come in for recertification. And I know taking surveys is not always fun, but it means we're a tremendous resource for understanding what's happening in frontline primary care, uh, how residency programs are preparing people for practice. And so that's led to some interesting things like working with the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology when they understood just the depth of our relationship with. 100,000 American Board of Family Medicine diplomates, they're working with us to assess which electronic health records people are using, which ones frustrate them, uh, where interoperability is blocked, and uh, where people are frankly experiencing burnout, whether their EHR is a source of that or contributing to it, we can't say, but we can show the relationship. And the idea there is that uh, ONC can formulate better policies and focus in on specific EHRs that look problematic. So I offer just that, that as an example of what we built over the last decade at the ABFM and its capacity to inform policy. So when you fill out those surveys, I'm so sorry, but you're actually contributing to something pretty powerful. Well, that's important. I think we're all working hard out there and trying to take our best care of patients and educating medical students and residents along the way to be prepared for practice. So I think it is important work. And for our audience, whenever you see those Robert Graham Center one-pagers in the AFP journal, this is where they started. There is value there in primary care. And knowing that we had a voice in the Affordable Care Act development and why primary care is valued greatly by your health system. Thank you for your leadership, Bob in those spaces, as well as the rest of your team. As you mentioned, there's Lars Peterson and, and others who've contributed greatly. My pleasure. So it's lucky that I get to do as a career what I highly value in terms of its impact. And, and that's, you know, that's what the center, the CPV is actually trying to achieve. We know that burnout, a great source of burnout is the leveraging of our professionalism. So doing for patients what they need to have done and not being reimbursed for it, not being valued for it. It's not part of the metrics that we, that we are measured on. And we, that's why the alignment is so important is professionalism shouldn't be what's leveraged to, to do what's right. It should be what's, what's supported in the, in the service of patients and patient care. And so that's what we're trying to achieve. We've seen that a lot during the pandemic. I think a lot of us have been leveraged, uh, asked to do things that were either unsafe for us or unhealthy for us or financially uh, bad for us, but we do it and, and it contributes to our burnout. And so we're really trying to unpack that relationship and support 
family physicians and primary care physicians better. Our Measures That Matter program is, is developing and testing measures of primary care's high value functions that we know from research have high alignment with outcomes, but they also are highly aligned with what family physicians started out wanting to do. So continuity uh, and, and the measurement of the relationships we have with patients, comprehensiveness and supporting us in doing a wider array of things than just triaging and referring patients. Patient-centered primary care measure that we developed with the Green Center that measures from the patient perspective what they value in the relationships with us. So our goal is to really create a, a bucket of those high value measures for primary care that are used to measure us and pay us and that we can use to assess our health systems and create pressure for our health systems to support us in delivering those values. So that, that's another example of one of the things we're trying to do. And our center is not exclusive to family medicine or even primary care. So we're trying to help other health professions understand how designing their own measures uh, can be very valuable. Wow. Well, you mentioned the bucket and I, I just have this vision of an overflowing bucket of voluminous information and resource. Is there a website? that our listeners could go to, to learn more about this, to resource, or even perhaps look for some of this data for some of their work and understanding. Absolutely. So if you just Google the Center for Professionalism and Value in Healthcare, um, we've got our work broken down into buckets um, and measures that matter is one of those. There's also information there about the prime registry, the national primary care registry that we launched four years ago now. We designed it to help practices, particularly small practices, participate in value-based payment and MIPS. So uh, we have about 800 practices in 47 states, and we're taking their EHR data and turning it into quality measures so that they can report it and get paid. But it also gives us authority with Medicare to develop and test new measures and to try those out. And while they're being tried out, people in the registry can use them for reporting. So continuity is one of those. That registry also lets us test tools for identifying patients that are likely to have social risk and social needs, to let people see the neighborhoods where their patients come from and understand the social determinants underneath that. And the registry has also enabled us to work with research partners like the Centers for Disease Control to understand how COVID is affecting frontline practices and patients, and now how long COVID is starting to appear and what it looks like and what are, what are primary care physicians doing to treat it. So we, we wanna tell primary care's story. We want, we want primary care's voice in the era of CDC so that we can be better supported the next time this happens. Mm -hmm. And in light of COVID, and for numerous reasons, we are in and experiencing a whole new era of medicine, and in particular, and what's frankly exciting to me is the growth and the value of primary care. So speaking of the value of primary care, Dr. Phillips has been asked to serve in many ways, and one of those most recently has been with the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. That's a mouthful. Bob, you, you've been part of this group for several years now. Can you talk about how some of this work you've done in this translational research and testing is beginning to develop the future value of primary care and what has stood the test of time? That's a great question. I'm going to go back a couple of years. 
people may remember the future of family medicine and family medicine for America's health. Um, so all the family medicine organizations came together and sponsored family medicine for America's health um, over five years to really help shape what the message is about what is needed to make primary care more effective and to help primary care physicians do their jobs better. One of the outcomes of that was some seed funding to the national academies for a study, a consensus study on primary care. Uh, there had not been one focused on primary care for 25 years, and we were desperately in need of one. So that seed funding allowed us to go to several, actually 17 other funders and get a substantial war chest to help not, not relitigate the evidence for primary care, but to collect it and say what should be done for primary care. And so that report was released last summer. It has five key objectives. Payment is one of them. So really focusing on how to pay for robust primary care teams and a relationship-based model that um, it is not 5% of total healthcare spend, but aiming for more like 12% of total healthcare spend so that you're not starving the sector that provides most of the care in this country. Uh, we have uh, objectives around access to care and declaring primary care a common good because it is the only sector of the healthcare system associated with better health outcomes and with longer lives. Um, so we want everyone to have access to it that wants access to it. It's about training and producing the workforce because we know that that workforce is eroding, particularly in rural areas. Uh, it is about digital health and making sure that our EHRs serve us, not us, them, and that it's turning the data into information for us to use in patient care. And lastly, focus on implementation and the glaring fact that we don't have a federal function that is focused on primary care. We have pieces of it in several different agencies, but no one whose responsibility is to take care of primary care and help it deal with national priorities like pandemics. So primary care was not mentioned in the national epidemic plan before this pandemic, and that should never happen again. So we want a federal function, a center, an office of primary care or a secretary's council whose job it is to work across agencies to help us uh, be more responsive to the nation's needs. And that's, that, that report has spawned a lot of good work, um, including the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health uh, designating uh, an initiative to strengthen primary health care that it will put in a proposal to the secretary this June for what that sustained function is called and what it looks like. But um, there are family physicians and internists in the federal government working on bringing together the agencies and, and saying, what are the top priorities? How will they address them together instead of in silos? And we hope that after June, that will take root because it's going to be crucial to all of the other objectives that we laid out. Big plans. It sounds like this is our chance. This is our opportunity. So it's it, a big shot. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like all of this background in the work and the contributions that our, um, those that we stand on the shoulders of in many ways and began all of this, Nick Pizzicano, the Joe Sugars, and all the other big names that have helped create family medicine, what it is today. I'm guessing this is part of the foundation of the implementing high quality primary care and its value report. And what do we do with that? I'm familiar with, I'm 
crossing the quality chasm when it was referred to as Institute of Medicine. When I say it, I mean the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And what are we going to do with it? What happens now? What do we do? Where do we go from here, Bob? Well, so there are a couple of groups working on the payment stream. Um, The Primary Care Collaborative and Primary Care for America are both working at redesigning how we pay for primary care in this country. Millbank Memorial Fund um, has long been a champion for increasing the, the primary care spend in this country, but that's become a bigger issue. And, we, and we're focusing on Medicare actually dedicating a, a percent spend, a declared percent spend for primary care so that other payers may follow. California Healthcare Foundation bought into this idea and is trying to organize it in California. We've got several states now trying to move it on a state level as well. So the report really it took a movement that had started and I think put it on steroids. We also have Millbank and the Physicians Foundation investing in a national scorecard, uh, something else that we called for in the report. So how do we measure our success and how do we hold um, federal and state agencies accountable for achieving the outcomes that we called for? So they're going to be measuring that and the Robert Graham Center is going to be their main analytic engine for producing that report card. And the goal is, is over time for that to become a way for us to track how we're doing and not letting things fall through the cracks. And then, as I said, the, the Office of the Assistant Secretary, this effort is really going to be critical, I think, for changing the relationship between primary care and the healthcare system uh, writ large. We have some gaps, and that's where I'd love for STFM and um, the academic family medicine community to weigh in. We don't have a champion yet for the training piece. Um, you may have seen over the, the last few months the, with the Graham Center, we've put out some, some publications in academic medicine and in JAMA that uh, point to the fact that we're not measuring the outcomes of medical school training. We're not measuring what $19 billion in graduate medical education funding every year is producing. The report calls for that to change, and that's what we're trying to shift now is to create accountability and measurement of outcomes and shift what $19 billion buys and particularly shifting it so that we're producing more primary care. And then we're training primary care physicians in rural and underserved and community-based settings. So there's a lot of movement, not necessarily kicked off by the report, but definitely giving it a tailwind. These are indeed exciting times. And I recall, as you said, oftentimes the report comes out and it lights the fire and fuels ideas, innovation, and direction and implementation. And now being around the block a couple of times and recognizing that what we think we accomplish in 10 years oftentimes takes 20, but 20 years is going to fly by, I have no doubt. So I would be curious, Bob, If you were to uh, develop a digital time capsule, if you will, in a journal fashion, and for it to be discovered 20 years from now, what would your forecast be? What would you share our dreams today and what you believe is somewhat realistic? What, What should we prepare or would medical students and residents and faculty and practicing physicians think about what they saw, something you wrote today, forecasted for 20 years ahead? Well, I think that they'll see that, I think that they'll see is that there was a big effort to not let this report sit on a shelf, but to actually turn into policy. And 
I, I think they'll see that the majority of states have enacted minimum primary care spends, meaning about that at least twice as much resource in terms of payment and other supports are, are going to primary care. I think that one is, is fairly certain to happen, even if it doesn't happen on the federal level. I think they'll see a concerted effort to change other aspects of payment, moving to blended payment models, moving to capitated payment over time. Some of that has already happened with Medicare Advantage plans. We've seen a number of our colleagues moved in direct primary care to try and get around the current payment models and, and deliver better care. I think, that will, I think that will shift in a big way. I do think there will be some form of office of primary care that is set up. I can't necessarily predict how successful it will be, but I think it will be key to, to some of those changes, particularly around payment, because it will, help, it will help the White House, it will help HHS understand you can't achieve health equity unless you have a primary care strategy. You can't adequately deal with the next pandemic unless you have a primary care strategy. So... I think it's going to elevate primary care in important ways as a focus of strategy for dealing with healthcare. That's not just a goal. That's what I'm going to work at for the next 10 years. Well, I have no doubt that you won't be alone in rolling your sleeves up. And I do believe the time is now. Our patients need us. Our communities need us. And we need to step up and um, tell the world what our value is and, and deliver on that value, frankly. So, but with that being said, you, you've already mentioned the tools that have been developed to focus this area, the measurement capability that exists. In the future, I do believe artificial intelligence will also play a role. And my understanding is the ABFM, the American Board of Family Medicine Foundation is already headed down this path, is that right? It is. It is. You know, working with um, with Winston Liao at University of Houston and with the Robert Graham Center, we've done some scoping work and realized that family medicine was getting left behind in this new tool called artificial intelligence or machine learning that can help make sense of a lot of data and turn it into tools for us, um, helping us do better diagnosis and faster diagnosis uh, because we're not just looking at the patient in front of us or drawing on our knowledge. We're looking across our whole patient panel and learning from it about what this person and their symptoms might be. So we've helped the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality recognize that these tools should not be developed on data from hospitals and then applied in primary care settings, that that actually could be very dangerous. So we have put together, the ABFM Foundation is dedicating $3 million over the next five years to de help develop this capacity in family medicine. So we wanna bring in methodologists who do AI and, and machine learning and bring them into family medicine research departments. So we're gonna fund at least four departments to, to have that capacity over a five-year period, hoping that they take root and develop projects and, and start to do real research for family medicine. And we're going to fund partners at Stanford, and we're going to fund partners in other places across the U.S. to have family medicine researchers work with AIML specialists, data scientists, to work with real-world data sets like our prime registry data to test and answer questions that we think are relevant and see if we can't turn those into tools to help us in our clinical practice. And we're leveraging that $3 million to get other philanthropy 
to build out similar capacity or to support our data sets and make them more available to data scientists. So that $3 million we're hoping translates into multiples of that. Um, and then when the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality catches up, we're hoping they also put money into this space. So we're excited about it. We think that this is really important and it's a very strategic investment. Tis just the beginning is what I'm hearing. And I'm excited to hear primary care first. Serving in different roles as a family physician at the bedside, as an ambulatory chief medical officer for a health system, that balance is critical. And in recognizing that the unique settings that patients deliver care, while it's experienced across the continuum for the patient and their families, it is incredibly important that we recognize this, the architects of healthcare delivery are aware of the uniqueness so that for the patient, it is indeed streamlined. And we know that this doesn't happen on its own. And I'm really, really excited about this as I hear diagnosis faster, but also better. How many times do we have the unfortunate cases of misdiagnosed or delayed diagnosed because we're frankly overwhelmed with the number of patients who need care, the complexity of care that we are expected to deliver, and with um, limited time to do so? Th this is so, so exciting, Bob. Well, and I'm, I'm interested to know things like which medications are the best ones to start patients on for diabetes? Most of what we know comes from randomized controlled trials where the patient populations don't look like ours. They're, they don't have multiple health conditions. So which medications should I start first? You know, which ones are likely to be dangerous with given health conditions? And same, I, I just think there's so much we don't know from the primary care setting and so much we have to learn from it. That's where I'm excited too. And I'm hoping that we can get the FDA to buy into that vision that CDC, like I said, we're already working with, they will buy into that vision. This is where most people come for care and is where most people present with their initial symptoms and understanding how to care for them better, how to diagnose them better is so critical. And we just won't be able to do it if we're left behind in terms of the methodology. Well, that is so true, Bob, and it is absolutely going to take the collaboration of all to move us forward, to provide better care. And, and diabetes is the perfect example. Now that we know we have medications that treat diabetes, but they also treat heart failure, they treat heart disease, even when you don't have diabetes. And who can possibly keep up with all of this information? Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for joining us today. I have learned a whole lot by what you've shared and am thrilled that primary care is in the game. Family medicine, especially and what's different and what I see, experiencing, can palpate today is also the partnership across primary care. So I so appreciate your leadership in that space. I know that our listeners are going to be leaning in and waiting to hear what's next. And we just thank you for your time, the work that you do, your leadership, and connecting translational research with reality for those on the front line, which includes you at Innova for almost 20 years. It's fantastic work. Well, Soria, thank you. And thanks for hosting this podcast. It's, what a treat. You've been listening to the SDFM podcast produced by the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine. Visit us at sdfm.org and follow us on Twitter at stfm underscore fm. This podcast is copyright Society of Teachers of Family Medicine 2021.